good morning, everyone. So glad that we are here this week. Last week, we started with the series called Generations, and we were talking a little bit about uh, the importance of a target. What's our target? What's our target both as a church or even individually? And we looked at the life of Jesus and the importance of his target when he came here on earth, especially when he came out of his time of temptation, the 40 days of of fasting and, and, and how he went through that testing and temptation and then God set him up, the Father set him up here on earth to transition into a new um, ministry of calling out people and, and showing them the importance of repenting and showing the importance of the kingdom of God. And so we wanted to talk about the necessity of reaching our new generation today. How important it is for us especially for us who are in different generations that have come from different generations. Uh, we have the silent generation, but we have the baby boomer generation, and we have the baby buster, and then we have the millennial, and today we have the Gen Z. And, you know, today what we wanted to do and starting in the next couple of weeks is discussing the importance of Titus, the book of Titus. We're going to be looking at that and looking at each generation the older man, the older woman, the younger man, the younger woman. And as we do, we're going to be focused on each particular generation, each gender, and how we can make a difference for the kingdom of God, how we are across, we're multi-generational within church settings and context, and we have to understand one another. So I looked up a list this week, and I Googled it. It says, you know you're a baby boomer when? Can I watch out now? Okay, here we go. You were born between 1946 and 1964. Now, some of you that maybe were born before that, like my in-laws and my mom and dad, um, you're still considered as part of it in the sense of the mindset. You still call CDs records. You still use that greasy kid stuff in your hair, even though you only have two strands left. You still dream of getting on the Ed Sullivan Show. You still haven't gotten used to self-serve filling stations. You long for the taste of old Dr. Pepper, which for somehow remembers it being more fruitier. You still run for cover when you see a bar of ivory soap because you're afraid someone will make you wash your mouth out with soap the next time you mouth off. You're glad you used dial and wish everyone else did. You had to be reminded if anyone under 35 says something is sick, because today it means it's cool, it's lit, it's, it's a good thing. Uh, growing up, your home telephone wasn't a landline, because what else could it have been? I mean, we talk about landlines today, even my wife still calls that, we call it that. Your pediatrician made house calls. You watched TV in a black and white, I remember this, a TV was a piece of furniture, and a TV repairman would come to the house to replace the tubes. How many of you remember that? If I remember that, you have to remember that. This is just a fun little thing that I read through. It's, it's just reminding me. If you were out in the street and you wanted to call someone, you had to find a pay phone. You're right, you had to go to one of those booths. Uh, your parents made a point of answering the te home telephone so they would know who was calling you. I recall that too. You got your grades for handwriting. How uh, many remember that? Yeah. You consider your grandparents to be really old where they were at the same age you are now. 
So that's something. But I just want to say it wasn't to be hilarious, but it's just a reminder. I, I read that list, and I'm only about a couple of years off from being a baby boomer. And it just reminded me of so many things growing up when I was a little boy. And just recall how far we've gone since that time. I remember just dialing the phone and just, you know, it would just be something we were accustomed to. And today where we are with cell phones and internet. And I tell my kids often, you don't even want to know. Or even Dennis and I were talking this past week and Dennis was telling Giuseppe, we only have four channels when we were kids. And one of them was WPIX where we could watch Yankee baseball. So it's like it was great. But here, when we're looking at the book of Titus, I wanted you to just turn with me to the book of Titus chapter 1, because we're going to look at chapter 2 in the coming weeks, but we're just going to sit in the background. I just want to read with you, because the idea is that I want to talk a little bit about the importance of, um, not working guys, if you can push the next slide. The um, live with no regret. One of the things we're going to talk about in chapter 2 is older men, verses 1 and 2. We're going to talk about that in chapter 2. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about is live with no regret. We have to remind ourselves too often that as we get older, we're looking back. And we want to be challenged with the idea that today we're, we're, our mindset is very, very important for us to gather in what's important here. So look with me to Titus chapter 1 because I just want to read the first few verses. And if you could, just follow along. Guys, I'll need your help over there in the, in the booth. It's not working. Okay, there you go. I'm going to need your help. There we go. Okay. Paul, servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the, of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, very important statement right there Paul's making, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of our God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior." Now look to me with verse 12 too. I want to highlight verse 12 of the same chapter because of that statement I just highlighted in verse 2. Verse 12. It says this, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. I want to stop there for just a second. The reason why Paul wrote something there in verse 2 about who never lies is because he wanted to emphasize that God is truth. His word is truth. See, Paul was establishing in Titus the importance of this island. It was, a, it was a narrow island, but a long one. And he wanted them to establish elders within the, the churches that were set up. And as he was doing so, he was reminding Titus of the importance of sound doctrine, of the importance of getting back to the person of God and the message of the gospel. This is vital in this particular chapter and also throughout this book. The importance of the truth. That's why he says who never lies is because Satan is the father of all lies. And a half a truth is still a lie. And so what God was establishing through Paul telling Titus is that he needs to establish men of character, of good conduct. The importance of them understanding there were men of faith, 
building up leadership and establishing them, and then highlighting the different generations because each one of us want to be, whether we're an older man, an older woman, a younger man, or a younger woman, or a child, we want to be women and men of character and good conduct, according to the scriptures. So to highlight and to emphasize the necessity of founding and setting up a foundation in the first few verses of this book was necessary, very necessary for them to grasp. And so as he's establishing that throughout, he's talking, highlighting the particulars of that. So as we are here, thank you, am I on? Thank you. The, we, have, we have virtues that are laid out in this particular chapter and setting of chapter one and two. And I have a diagram here, and you have one in your worship guides there. And I want you to fill it out with me. We're going to go through the circle, starting on the left and going around. And we're going to start with the word character. Character is necessary in understanding when we're calling about the, the importance of virtue. Because if we see in recent years, many men of God, progressive leaders today, we call them progressive evangelical leaders today, which are doing a great job in reaching the new generation, are falling by the wayside because of bad character. Not only immorality, but pride, arrogance, envy, jealousy, trying to highlight who is the best out there. When you have Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, whichever use of media that you have, one of the struggles that exists is that the face is out there often, and we want to highlight the importance of character. So look with me as this is um, something that is necessary for us to gather. First of all, here's one of my definitions that I came up with. It's a simple one that I just put together. It's the specific inner traits of the individual displayed through attitude and actions and daily living. This is a, I call this a secular definition of character. Because throughout society, in businesses, and anywhere that you would go, people are interested in character. When they're trying to lead their companies, whether they are either CEOs or presidents or vice presidents or manager of a division, they want to make sure that people under them are men and women of great character. And so their inner traits, a character is something that's working inside of us that are displayed through our attitude and our actions. If you own a business and you're not there 24-7, you place people in leadership roles to make sure that the people working under that leader the people have good attitudes and actions. If you see Chick-fil-A, one of the greatest um, organizations with structure and, and, person, and personable approach, what they use is that, that expression, my pleasure. You often go there and you say, did they really have to say my pleasure about five times? But when they did it, it just reminds you of their attitude. They, had such a great, they have such a great attitude. They serve you well because in the organization, they make sure that each person is serving the customer well. So character is necessary in order for organizations to be successful. Even A.W. Tozer, one of the greatest, I think, in, in recent years, one of our greatest theologians and, and scholars said this. He, he says that A it defends character as the excellence of moral beings. The excellence of moral beings. Each one of us wants to be excellent in what we do, what we say, how we carry ourselves. But that's in an inner working of God in each one of us. So another definition that I came out is called Christian character. And this simply is this, the Holy Spirit's inner working. The Holy Spirit's inner working to shape, conform, and challenge the attitudes and actions in the life of the Christian. 
Because when we're looking at it, character must be developed in leaders before the leaders can be called others to do the same. Leaders cannot ask people, and I'm not just referring to us as a pastoral team and elders here at church. I'm talking about leaders even in the church as a whole. Each one of us are called to be leaders. If we're called to be discipleship makers, we're leaders. And each one of you, if you have a home, you're a leader as a man. And you're a, you have a home and you're a mother and you're a wife, you're a leader. Each one of us establish ourselves as leaders according to the scriptures. And it's important for us to understand that character stands above. Before their abilities and skills, character stands above. I'd rather take a person of character than have a person who has the abilities and skills and has no character. And character, because you can, you can encourage people and grow in skills and ability, but you can't change someone in character. They have to be willing to submit to God and ask God to use them in a way. They've got to surrender and confess and ask God to do an inner work in them. And so it's important. The responsibility for all of us begins with each one of us. And that's why in the book of Titus, we have to see how important this is. I, I looked up an article and I saw this, unfortunately, it says the pattern among fallen pastors, sadly, because they're recognized as one of those leaders that are necessary to leading a church. And an article in, in uh, the Gospel Coalition says this, number one, sin thrives in isolation. Pastors tend to isolate themselves. They don't want anybody to know their business. It gets to the point on the other side where we have, to, we have to balance ourselves. We can't be in everyone's lives, but at the same time, we can't isolate ourselves. And it's important for us that we do that, but many who have fallen have isolated themselves. They haven't been accountable. They haven't confessed sin. They haven't shared with another brother about their struggles. They haven't shared it with their own wives. Another thing was they would flirt with sin which would then fall into sin. And so important for us to hold each other accountable, especially for pastors and especially for leaders in, in churches and amongst and abroad in our homes. But another thing he says, pride blinds us to our weakness. This was a pastor writing this article. Pride blinds us. These are the blind spots that we don't even realize we have. I'm placing myself out there as a pastor, saying that we have to be careful because we're called to leadership, and as a leader, we have to be reminded of how important that is. That's why in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, it says this, that, and Paul was highlighting this to Titus. He said, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let me just go back to hold firm. Holding firm in the Greek says this, to have a strong attachment to something or someone, to cling, hold fast, to devote. What elders, leaders of a church should be doing is devoting themselves to the word of God, to the sound doctrine, to the trustworthy word, which is the gospel, the faithful message. I love what the NET says, faithful message. See, God is faithful. He promises till this, his promises still stand today. He's faithful. He called his people to be faithful throughout the scriptures. And the message of the gospel, the person and work of Jesus. And they are to cling to the faithful message of the gospel. Now, when we do that, then we know we're sinners. When we do that, we know we're not supposed to isolate ourselves. When we do that, we know we need to be discipleship makers. 
When we do that, we're called to be shepherds. When we do that, we have to be interested in other people's lives, not our own. It's not important for me or any other pastor to say, hey, you need to reach those in your community, and I'm doing nothing about that. I was next door to my neighbor, and he's a Christian, and we were talking. We are getting to know each other, and he was talking about, you know, he was praying for an opportunity to reach our neighborhood. I thought that was great. I said, yeah. He goes, you know, Bruno, I'm thinking about maybe we can do like a block party and get, you know, opportunities to just share and, you know, get into our community. I said, hey, I love that idea, Ted. Let's do something like that. Because I want to reach our neighborhood. I said, yeah. I said, what good is it that I tell the people at my church to go out and reach your neighborhood if I'm not doing it myself? So I said to him, I said, we pray every night at our, at our dinner table for you. We've just been praying. We make that an important part of our commitment to our neighborhood to start with prayer and ask God to use that. And we don't know where God's going to take that. We just start with prayer. And then we ask God to give us wisdom on how to reach our neighborhood. And it's hard. It's not easy. It's a very difficult task. It's not one, especially now that the winter's coming, everybody's going to hibernate. Everybody's going to go into their caves. And I happen to have a little cave now, too, and I'm enjoying it. And so i got to be careful. I don't go down the stairs and don't want to come back up, especially if I get in my reclining chair because I'll forget that I even exist. I'll just sit there and go, whoo, I'm in, I'm in heaven. I've got to get out of that chair, jump up, move around, and start saying, you know what, i got to reach my neighborhood. But it's important for us that we have to cling to the word of God. And I don't think he's just calling for leaders. I think he's calling for all people to do so. And so we as leaders have to be held accountable on how important that is. But also in verse 9, it's important to see this, that he said, so that. That word so that in the Greek is a henna clause. It's a purpose clause. Here's the purpose why not only leaders but all should be holding firm to the trustworthy, faithful message of the gospel so that we can give instruction. So we'll be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, the trustworthy word, the sound doctrine, the healthy. The word sound is where we get hygiene from in English. It's healthy. It's sober. It keeps us sane. It's saying that someone who is not sober and is drinking above the level of alcohol, they're not sober. They can't be sane in their thinking at that moment. They need to be sobered up. And that's what he's telling them, that it gives us sober thinking about ourselves, about others, about our need to confess sin, our need to look to God, our need to praise God, our need to confess who we are and who he is. That's the importance of this. But it also brings apologetics to rebuke those who contradict it. Because, see, we're, unfortunately, the nuns group of the Gen Z views the church as 80%, 7% of them are judgmental. Now, what does that mean? That means that our attitude, our heart toward people is that we immediately judge someone without even knowing anything about them. We are called as a Christian to be an apologetic and an apologist by saying, hey, you know what? I want to call you out and defend the faith according to the word of God, not according to my feelings. So when someone says to me, um, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, pastor, I, I cursed, I said, says, you need to go before the Lord with that one because I stand before God and make sure that my heart's right with God. You need to confess your sin. I hold people accountable to that. When people say, oh, watch out, I'm in the house of God. Where's the house of God? If you're a child of God, that's your temple, your house. That's your house. That's the temple of God. See, and we were to defend, call people out in love, but according to the scriptures. That's what an apologist does. They have the information of the necessity of that. And so we have sound doctrine. This is vital. That's why I'm staying here. Why? Because here's what the Gen Z and the nuns group have done. They've taken the word sin 
and they substitute it with mistakers. We're just mistakers. We make mistakes. In a book uh, written by James Emery White, The Rise of the Nuns, I want to just read a statement he made. Unfortunately, this is sad, but we have to defend the gospel, defend the faith, defend the truth. He says, now it's gone even further than mistakes. He says, we're not sinners at all anymore. As many have observed, we're just mistakers. We even started to lose that. Lately, we don't even want to call sin a mistake. We want to turn everything we do into a virtue. So lust becomes sensuality, and anger just means being honest with your emotions. Even when we apologize, we apologize, we say things like, I'm sorry you were offended by what I said or did. No admittance that we did anything wrong. Just sorry that the other person wanted or wasn't mature enough to handle it. The latest edition of the Oxford Junior Dictionary for Children went all the way and made it official. The compliers removed the word completely. They don't even have the word sin in the dictionary anymore. And it's so important to understand that we are adamant about the sound doctrine, the word of God, the faithful message, the importance of us to have character. And as character, it's necessary. That's why, this is why I want to challenge each one of us. As we're looking at this and we're asking ourselves a question, as we look at Scripture and realize how important it is for us to realize that even in chapters 2, 1 through 8, without reading word for word, highlights the men, the older men, the older women, the younger men, and and they lay out virtues there, virtues that talk about sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and in love and steadfastness. Reverent in behavior, not slanders, which we'll talk about that next week, or slaves to much wine. Teach what is good, so train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Most of this highlighting the fact it wasn't just cultural. I believe this is biblical, and it's important for us to understand because what happens when we get older, and I'm feeling a little bit of that, What happens when we're struggling or we're not sure? Sometimes we hear older men say that we're too tired. We lose patience. We like routine and don't have time to minister to youngers. We're set in our ways. We don't understand. Just do it my way. We don't feel valuable. We get grumpy. (laughs) We don't teach, but we tell. We don't wait but we put weight on them. Sometimes we can fail in these areas, and it's important for us to be reminded that how can we in character display the importance of the younger generation to see who Christ is in us? I see a lot of good older men in this church that have done some of that, and I'm thankful for that. Coming here as your lead pastor now, I've seen and heard that we have a good group of older men that truly want to reach a younger generation because you're leading by example, and I want to spur you on to continue that, to continue going forth, but we have to be reminded that it only starts with character, even starts with a second thing, conduct. It starts with conduct. It's important because conduct are actions that derive from the heart. Look with me at Mark 7, 14 through 22. Jesus highlighted the importance of what's in the heart. And he called to the people to him again. He said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. This is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. 
And when we had entered the house and left the people, his disciples said to him about the parable. And he said to them, they, then are you are also without understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters in, not into his heart but his stomach and is expelled, thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person what is, is what defiles him. For within him, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, adultery coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, <laughs> envy, slander, pride, foolishness. That's what comes from the heart. And so conduct comes from the heart. Why am I saying this? Because it's not behavior modification. Too often what we do is we think if we just tell our children, our grandchildren, kids around the church, just change your behavior and act like a Christian. Just act like one. Just be good for now. When you go home, we'll deal with it. But just be good right now. Make me look good. Deep down, when you see, when you're looking, when you're at a baseball game and you're watching young people play, it's not the kids you got to calm down. It's the parents. The parents struggle. They carry themselves out of character, and their conduct is way out of line. They get so excited, overwhelmed. They want their kids to do well, because if their kids don't do well, they don't reflect them well. And it's, it's, that, it's that syndrome that occurs with parents in every, in every place, whether it's sports, whether it's academics. We don't want our children, because we don't want them to reflect us in a bad manner, because we want a reputation to be good. We like when people come up and say, oh, your child, oh, your child, oh, your child. I mean, when I, I tell you my son, it's like people, they, they come around, oh, your son, oh, oh, let me stop you there. Have you ever come to my house? <laughs> Have you ever hung out? Be a fly on the wall. And then you say, okay, now they're balanced. I mean, they're wonderful. It's great. But each one of us, oh, Bruno, you're great. No, 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 I have my struggles. Because we do. We're challenged. But I'm often challenged with the fact that as conduct, it's so important for us not to think that behavior change is right standing with God. God's not so interested in that because I think he's interested in something else. He's interested in spiritual conduct. See, spiritual conduct is not man's ability to change behavior, but rather it is God's work transforming the heart which then changes our actions. That's what God is doing. That's why with elders or leaders or whomever you are, a mother, a father, a grandfather, a grandmother, our character and our conduct must reflect the virtues that are laid out in the scripture. It's not just a change of behavior. You can fool people. I can fool people. But we can't fool God. And it's so important for us to understand. That's why I think Paul was highlighting the importance of being sober-minded. It starts with the heart. Even Paul said it in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the beauty of the gospel. That keeps us on a, a level playing field. Each one of us desperately need Jesus. Each one of us are dependent on God. Each one of us can't change our behavior and, and fool people. We desperately need God to do a transformation in our hearts. 
That's when it really is the working of God. It's, it's the pattern of behaviors changing within our own ability that totally, totally will implode one day. That's why I think pastors are falling. Because they're trying to hold on to behaviors that are a pattern of behavioral change rather than leaning on the Lord. I'm holding us accountable as leaders. We have to. That's why Titus chapter 2, when we get to this, we understand that he's talking to older men. But as for you, teach what accord with sound doctrine. Healthy doctrine, healthy teaching is what that means. And teaching comes in different manners. But sober-minded, he goes on in verse, verse 2, sober-minded, sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Sober-minded means being restrained in conduct. It even means a moderate drinker. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean you can't drink. It means one who does not get too much wine, but one who is restrained to not get outside of sober-minded or healthy-minded. Dignified means this, the worthy of respect, serious and noble. This refers to an older man's behavior. What this doesn't mean is that an older man has to have it all together or never lose his cool. What it does say is that where and when do we have permission to get frustrated? Because, <laughs> see, I believe an older man needs counseling and a place to vent. And it's usually the wife, poor old wives. I mean, the wives have to hear us all the time when we struggle. But we have to be careful, but we have to vent at times. Self-control simply means this, and this is across all ages, all generations. It means, you know, it's, it, it's just the idea where attacked, misrepresented, where there's gossip, falsely accused, or someone's hurt as a loved one, contentious or angry with no pretense. We need to be self-controlled. We need not to lose control. We need to be contained. And this is why it's important when we look at verse 12 of chapter 2, the word training comes into mind. Training is necessary. It means to assist and develop of a person's ability to make appropriate choices. Practice discipline. It just it leans towards sound mind. So any one of us, when we're trained... We don't go out and play the game until we're trained well. You have coaches all around you in football. You have managers all around you. You have strength conditioners all around you. Coaches speaking to you, talking about the different plays, trying to set you up. But the key word in Christianity isn't behavior modification, change your behavior. It's training. And training means that we have to work hard at something. It's not just, I leave myself to God and hope, Lord, that you'll just do the work through me. It's training ourselves in righteousness is being clinging to sound doctrine, praying and seeking and chasing God, getting in the word of God, asking God to change us, being in that work of when we're sober-minded, God's given us the ability to do so, but we have to practice at it through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's sanctification. That's spiritual discipline. That's the importance of doing that every day. And that's why it's vital for us to be doing that. So conduct is important. Character is important. But here's something else that's important too for the believer. It's correction. It's correction. Correction is, is real simple. If we look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. There's that word training. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that's why he's talking about in verse 2, 
going back to Titus chapter 2, verse 2, the importance of being sober-minded, dignified, self-control. But here, he goes on with these other three words that are necessary. Sound in faith. Sound in faith. Now, if we look at 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, we see that Paul highlighted this. The importance of sound faith. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. See, here's what it comes down to. In correction, we need to grow. We need someone to be accountable to. Paul is holding Timothy accountable in relationship and accountability. Each one of us need to have a Timothy in our lives. Each one of us need to have a Paul in our lives. Each one of us need to understand that as a leader, as a child of God, character and conduct come when we're corrected. We need to have someone in our lives that holds us accountable and calls us out. When I share often, and Dennis hears this, I talk often of Jim Hertzler, my father in the Lord. I share some of my struggles, my difficulties. I vent some of those things, and he corrects me in love. Because when I was growing up, my father didn't correct me. He'd yell and scream at me. But he didn't tell me why. I'd even remember times when I'd sit there and I'd, we'd have a set of hedges because we just had these little small little hedges we had to cut and then they finally cut them down when I was a kid. But we had it. I would try to cut the grass and make the yard look good and I didn't. I said, Dad, look, look, I did. He goes, ah, it's not good enough. You missed here, you missed there, you missed there, you missed there. But then I said, okay, wh- what can I do better? And he'd walk away. He wouldn't tell me what to do better. I'd sit there and go, wow, I would just love for him to show me how to do it better. I was a young kid trying to be approved by my father, and here he wasn't even highlighting anything. He wasn't even correcting me. He would just yell or just say, I didn't do it good enough, and walk away. And I was longing for correction. And when I got saved, that's when God started showing me that it's okay to be corrected. It's okay to learn. It's okay to be trained. Because when someone would call me out, I would be afraid. I would, I would back off and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. What are you going to do now? You're going to yell at me some more? And God had, a tr- he had to d- deliver me through that in the last 20 years to help me through that struggle. Because, see, correction is necessary in our walk with God. We need to be held accountable. And when we do so, just as Paul did with Timothy, you gain something else. You gain one other thing, compassion. See, Timothy, he, he learned from Paul because Paul was a man of great compassion. See, he used the word love. He used the word love as he's using in Titus chapter 2 too. He used the word love because love is unconditional in the context, the biblical context. It's not enabling. What's the difference? Enabling is when we let people get away with things and not teach them something through it. Love is holding someone accountable, calling them out, and then correcting them. Love is not saying, oh, I'll let you get away with this one. Oh, we'll just let you get away with this one. Love is showing forth, identifying something in their lives and then correcting them and giving them hope. That's the beauty of compassion. See, this is why Paul was able to do this in 1 Timothy 1:15 and 16. He said, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He knew that. He received grace and mercy 
And he knew that God correcting him, he would be an example of use for someone else in their lives. I've noticed that in my life, when God was changing me and correcting me and transforming me and setting me apart for the purpose, when I was going through the trial, the difficulty, when I was feeling as isolated from God, abandoned by God, God saying, wait a minute, I'm doing this for a purpose. I want to set you up because you're needing to minister to someone else in the near future. And when I would go through the struggle and the difficulty, I noticed that God would put someone else in my life who was struggling with the same thing. And as God was correcting me, it was hard. When I was under that light, that bright light, and God was exposing me, it was hard to know that I had to be corrected. But then when God corrected me, I had a compassion to saying, wow, God, you changed me. I saw your hand in my life. Now, God, you give me your compassionate heart so I can be compassionate towards others. And that's the beauty of God. Because God wants to develop that in each one of us. And when we do so, we become steadfast and enduring. We endure through the struggles. We endure through the, through the challenges. We endure through the trials of our lives. Paul even went further and Timothy, he told Timothy this. He said, remember Jesus Christ, sound doctrine, faithful message, the gospel, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, although innocent as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Sound doctrine is not bound. The faithful message of the gospel is not bound. That's the beauty of God, that whenever we're going through a struggle, we know the word of God is a constant, and we can hang on and depend on God in such a beautiful way. And he goes on, verse 10, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. See, because he said in verse 16 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, he said, I can be an example of others. He goes, I endure for the sake of the elect, that they also may attain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That's what he's saying. When I have a good character and a good conduct, and I know I have to be corrected and I have compassion, then the beauty of it is that it becomes something of great value to someone else. You know, I, I love the story of Louis Zamprini. Born in 1917, was an American World War II veteran, Christian evangelist later in his life, an Olympic distant runner. Pastor Dennis would appreciate that. Japanese prisoner war survivor. Zamperini took up running in high school and qualified for the U.S. in the 5,000-meter race for the 1936 um, Berlin Olympics. But what happened was in 1941, he was commissioned into, into the United States Army Air Forces as a lieutenant. He served as, as a, a bombardier for B-24 liberators in the Pacific. And on the search and rescue mission, mechanical difficulties forced Samprini's plane to crash in the ocean after drifting at sea for 46 to 47 days. He was captured and occupied on Marshall Islands by, by the Japanese. He was then taken to prison camp in, in Japan where he was tortured. I wanted to share with you just a scene from that movie, Unbroken, uh, and just seeing what he had to go through in that particular scene. One of the things that um, he had, the enduring process, in fact, the actor had, um, had struggled with that scene. He passed out twice doing that scene because he had to get to that, to that strat stature of showing forth the scene there. And Zamprini 
mentioned there was something inside of him. A typical person could not hold that up. A strong man couldn't even hold that up more than three minutes, but he held it for over 30 minutes in real life. He said something came over him that he could not let go of that plank. He had to sit in that position, and, and at that time, it, something just overtook him, he said. See, the beauty of understanding of endurance is that that is one of the characters of, that, that will cause someone to do one thing, be consistent. See, consistency lays out this whole diagram. You can have character, conduct, correction, and compassion, but consistency is necessary in character for Christ. Staying forth, standing firm to the faithful message of the gospel, enduring for the sake of the gospel, holding on to sound doctrine. That's why the leaders, the elders, it is necessary because of all the weight they have to carry in leading in a church, being appointed by God, that they must remain consistent, but they have to be consistent only through holding on to the faithful message of the gospel. That's the beauty of it. I, I, I laid out another diagram that you see on your worship guide there. I'm going to say this to you really quick. I already gave you the answers because I just want to show forth this diagram that's so necessary to see. Each one of us who are a little bit on the older side, and older meaning 60 or older is what scholars believe that Paul was talking about. And the older men, we have a past. What's your past like? What were your trials before Christ? How did you react to your trials? Did you react or respond? Were you angry a lot? Um, Did you often get angry and not even think through uh, some of those things? You have a culture, whatever your culture is, ethnic culture, subculture, it affects who you are as a person. And as you're going through this funnel, I created this idea of a funnel in your life. You have attitudes from your past that can still trickle into your walk with Christ of what you used to be like and what God's doing. But as you're going through the funnel, you see the in Christ in the middle. And in Christ means that God is filtering out all those things from the past, your culture, your past, your attitude. And he's in Christ, God's changing you, forming you, that spiritual conduct. He's moving, the Holy Spirit's working in our lives, doing that work, and it's a, pro- it's a process and it's, there's progress. And out of it funnels out the character of Christ, and the conduct, the virtues that a Christian should have. And when they do that, I believe that's what happens. God is doing that work. Whoever you were 30, 40 years ago, you no longer are. I look back and I was like, wow, who was I 30 years ago? And what God's doing and continues to do. But he's doing that inner work. The Spirit of God is doing the inner work in me. And then my actions will change when he's doing that work in me. It's so important for us to understand Because it's necessary to realize that the key thing is we must be about sound doctrine. I've got one other video here in light of Louis Zamprini. Angelia Jolene was the director of that movie. As many know or have heard of her, she is the daughter of John Voight, one of of the famous actors of today. He's older in his years. But she wrote this about Louis Zamprini, and I just want to share this with you. She goes, I think to see someone rise up, to see somebody confronted with so many obstacles in life who refuses to go down and not only stand up, but somehow find a way to love and live again in the full of of usefulness and joy. She continues, pausing as she considered her subject's life, she said that, Zamprini experienced a religious conversion following the war, and he dedicated himself to helping at-risk youth and become a popular motivational and devotional speaker. I spent time with Lou and have been influenced by this story. I think it's something we need today more than ever. You look around 
you and there's so much to be overwhelmed by. And you study his life, this imperfect life, which it's what's so beautiful about him. He was a little immigrant kid who was smoking, stealing, and drinking by the time he was nine and thought he was worth nothing. A lot of us have had that feeling. I've, this is Angelique Jolene, I've certainly had it myself. And he turned his life around and became someone who would later inspire so many people. Look at this inspiration. Over the 4th of July weekend, the flags of the city flew at half-staff to remember a man we call our hometown hero. And now we're here today to celebrate the life of Louis Zamperini. I was actually on my way to bed on the night of July 2nd and I heard my cell phone make a little noise and decided to check that last message and it was Louis's daughter Cynthia telling me he had passed away that night. And I got down on my floor and had a, had a good long cry about it. And I felt almost surprised that he had died even though he was 97 years old because he seemed immortal. And not just because he had faced death over and over and found a way through every time, but because his spirit was so strong, so vital, that it seemed immortal. My grandfather has been a lot of things to a lot of people. He's a testament to the strength and resilience of the human spirit. But to me, he's always just been my grandpa, the loving, kind, and generous man who went above and beyond to give me a chance at a better life than he had and the wisdom to be a better man than he was. That's a tough act to follow. While my heart is indeed broken, we won't get to see Louis on the red carpet. His spirit and love of life will remain unbroken for eternity. The last time I talked to him before he passed away, I said, Dad, you're dying today but your work continues, and his story is being told to millions and millions and millions for years to come. I brought the film to the hospital the day before he went to ICU, and uh, it, it was amazing. It was amazing because he was, it was looking at this beautiful, beautiful face of this 97-year-old man with his still sparkling, beautiful blue eyes, and showing him his life when he first saw the, the planes, it starts with the planes, and he saw Donald, and he said under his breath, Phil. And I thought, oh, Phil, he remembers Phil. Like, it had nothing to do with whether or not I did a good shot or whether or not the movie's great. He, he was just seeing Phil. And when the flak went off, he jumped and had a reaction because that was the war he was in, and he remembers those days. And when he was running, when he watched himself running, was, I can't explain what that, I, I felt so privileged to be witnessing this moment, watching somebody who's at the end of their life, watching himself be at the peak of his physical ability and seeing himself with his brother, who, you know, in Louis's mind, he's, he was a very, very devout Christian and believed as soon as he passed away, he would be with Pete again and his mom and dad. and. So to watch him reflect and kind of visit with them and remember their times together right before he was preparing to be with them in heaven, it was, it was extraordinary. It's extraordinary. You know, I just wanted to leave this chart with you to be reminded, as the worship team is coming up, I just want us to be reminded, too, of the necessity. You're older. 
you have a chance to make a difference for the kingdom of God. Angelia Jolie's life was changed by just spending time with Louis. I pray that God would use you and continue to use you that you can make a difference for the kingdom of God. As the team is coming up, let me pray. Father, thank you so much. You truly are an awesome God. We love you, God. We know that we can be used of you in many different ways. Today, Lord, we were reminded of the importance of even as older men, we have the chance to make a difference in the life of a younger person, a younger man. God, I just pray you would challenge not only the older men in this church, but also all people here in this church of the importance of being people of character, consistency is a necessity, but character, conduct, people who need to be corrected, people of true compassion so we can remain consistent in you. Lord, we just pray you'll move us in our hearts as we continue to worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.